and welcome to episode 1480 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by Fangraphs and our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I am joined by both Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer and Sam Miller of ESPN. How are both of you? Okay. Happy. Oh, happy. Why? Uh, uh, I just am. Oh. <laughs> well, I'm happy because the Orioles signed Cole Stewart to a major league deal. Oh, get out of here. Huge. Huge. Ah. He could be a mainstay in that Orioles rotation. He's going to get a shot to compete for a a spot in the rotation. Dang it. As you'll discover, Meg, one of the great things about the minor league free agent draft is that you suddenly have a stake in transactions and players that (laughs) you otherwise would not even notice. My day has been made because the Orioles signed Cole Stewart, which uh, normally I would immediately forget. I think what what I definitely need in my life is to feel more anxiety on behalf of strangers. That doesn't <laughs> occupy enough of my emotional bandwidth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's pretty Excited. exciting. Wow. I was uh, I was <sighs> hoping some bad team would give him a shot, and that has happened. I almost go. didn't take Cole Stewart just because he was so bad <laughs> yeah. with the Twins, and he got shots with them, which is the other thing. So I figured, well, the team that drafted him, they'll be the ones to to give him a shot if there's anything there. Although I guess he was drafted under a different regime and you never know change the scenery or something but they have had success improving pitchers so i don't know what it means that they cut him loose anyway trying to avoid any coal in my stocking jokes but going to the orioles that is about as promising an assignment as i could have asked for i'm looking at their depth chart right now and as it is now before cole stewart has been added to it because this transaction only happened two hours ago their rotation has fewer members than left field (laughs) (laughs) also first base they have more people at first base than rotation yeah they have Mm. quite a a log jam at first yeah wow Mm. well great i mean great pick uh thank you might be the last this might be the last year i i i do this free agent draft if i don't know if i can handle just being crushed from day one (laughs) it's a long season yeah can i also bring up a a scott boris quote yes didn't get quite as much play as, as most of the Scott Boris analogies or metaphors, but now whenever he says anything, we all get notified. <laughs> At least <laughs> I do. I get tagged, and yeah, it's just I... one of those things where it just says, like, at Ben Lindbergh, and, there's, yep. and I just know that someone's tagging me so that I'll see something, and I figure, oh, Scott Boris must have said something. <laughs> so this was a Blue Jays-related quote, so quoting Alexis Brodnicki here, from Hyunjin's point of view, so he's talking about Hyunjin Ryu. I mean, it's kind of like Canada has its Royal Canadian Mounties, while the Blue Jays have their Royal Youth Uprising, and RYU for a Ryu, if you will. What? (laughs) (laughs) He said, if you will, again, which is something that he he said uh, pretty recently, and I was surprised that he said, if you will, because usually he doesn't give us a choice about whether we will or not. He just puts it out there. Yeah, I don't think I will. I don't think uh, I will. Royal Youth Uprising is a is a very kind of scary. Yeah, it sounds yeah. like fascistic or something. Yes, it really yeah. does. Plus, Ryu's not part of the, the no. Royal Youth Uprising. He's like a, he's going to turn thirty three. Like, yeah, they have he's an oldie youth. like I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I just turned thirty three, so we're not part of the Royal Youth Uprising anymore. No. So, I don't know. I mean, they do have uh, exciting young players, but. Most of them debuted this past year, and this is pretty labored. I appreciate the effort to personalize it and make it Canadian somehow, but this but, is... But by... I, I have a couple... By just saying the word royal. 
Right. Well, he, the Mounties, uh, he's trying to bring in a, a Canadian tradition, Canadian they iconography. Have the they but, do have the queen on their money. The, <laughs> yeah. the, the whole, not there's queen, nothing, but... as far as you know, Ben, the royal youth uprising does not predate his construction of this joke. I don't think so. I don't think that was something people said about the Blue Jays before. Or the, and it's also not a thing in Canada. There's not <laughs> an actual to, royal youth uprising in Canada. I'm afraid to Google it. I don't want to end up on the list. <laughs> no. Yeah, there's a there's a RotoWare T-shirt. I saw that. that you yeah, get, but it doesn't say when it became available. No, I, I think they just created that in response to the, the Boris quote, yeah. hoping that this would catch on and be something that Blue Jays fans say about themselves. But is is the idea here? Well, let's. It is the holiday season, so let's approach this with a spirit of generosity. So I suppose that you could say, given who some of the most important young players on the Blue Jays are and their lineage as mm. human persons, mm. that mm-hmm. they are the descendants of baseball royalty, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's still, I still don't care for it. It feels post-apocalyptic in a way. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it just feels like an attempt to create an acronym that is the same as the last name of Scott Boris's client. Which, yeah, uh, I don't care for this. <laughs> it's not very organic. I don't know. No. I don't feel like the the offspring of royals are the ones likely to be leading an uprising either. Normally, it's no. the... True. The usually you're on, you're you're on one side of the revolution or the other, and usually the king's children are on the wrong side. Yeah. Right. They're the ones being overthrown by someone else who's rising I, up. I don't want to ascribe that sort of I, I don't like ascribing that to the the scions of the, the youth in Toronto. I don't mm. want to ascribe fetishistic uh that's not the right word. <laughs> Leave it in, Dylan. Don't you dare take it out. I've only had one cup of coffee. I'm working on my second, so here yeah. we go. Anyway, I don't want to assume that of Vlad. Don't care to do that. Mm-hmm. Could work for the Blue Jays, like overthrowing the Yankees or the Red Sox or something, but oh. but no, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's not like anything that Scott Boer says that we ever talk about is like, oh, yeah, that was that was good. That was clever, really. We're usually just bringing it up on it to just kind of dump on it, and uh, that's that's what we're doing here. But this is... This isn't even at the level of like the the bird analogy from the winter meetings. That was elaborate and at least made you think this one. I don't know. No, right. They tend to be dad joke level humor crossed with three times through a Google translator level grammar. (laughs) Yes. Can I read uh, Ian, uh, Ian, a reader named Ian, when, when we were talking about the fake Boris quote game long ago, he, he actually offered a suggestion to include in the game, and I thought it would have been good, and I wonder if Ben would have been fooled by it. And I've, uh, but it didn't make it. We we didn't end up using it, but it does. I think need need to be appreciated. So I'm just gonna read it, and and y'all can tell me if you think it's a good one. This is Ian's fake Scott Boris. I've got a chicken, a fox, and a bag of corn here, and I can only take one of them across a river at a time. If you're not careful, the chicken could get into the corn, or worse. But I think we've got a big enough boat this year. We'll see how the current is running. 
yeah, that's, that's good. pretty good. Yeah, that's the thing. When I saw this Ryu one, I had to double check and make sure that it was coming from multiple sources <laughs> because it's it's kind of become a, a Twitter thing to make up fake Boris quotes. Like a friend of the show, Kazuto Yamazaki, he's been making up fake Boris quotes, and I've seen people quote tweet them and take them seriously. So it's easy to get fooled out there now. Lots of Boris imposters, but this is genuine. All right. Mm-hmm. So we're here to talk about the defining enduring memory of 2019 as best we can, given that it is still 2019. And Sam, you wrote about this. You also wrote about several things that you learned this year, and we've talked about a couple of them on the show, but uh, the others all would have been good banter material, so you've been holding out on us and saving them for this end-of-the-year column, and uh, I wanted to just bring up one or two of them, maybe. I don't know how you came across these, but the the Candlestick Park uh, mm. Can't call it a fun fact. It's uh, <laughs> many it's the people opposite. died. <laughs> many people died at Candlestick Park because uh, in its first few years, before they had an escalator. I don't know if this was just before escalators, period, or just before there was an escalator there. There was a long incline that you had to walk up as you were going, I guess, from public transit or from the parking lot to the stadium, and. People just were dropping like flies as, as they were walking up the staircase. And you you mentioned here that as many as 19 people had fatal heart attacks tried yeah. to go to Giants games at Candlestick Park in a period of, what, just a, a few years, right? Yeah, in three years, there were uh, sometimes I see 18, sometimes I see 19 documented <laughs> fatal heart attacks uh, that came after uh, fans walked up Cardiac Hill, <laughs> including, uh, and this was quickly identified, there were six in the first 19 games, including a sheriff's deputy. And after that, uh, it became, a, a, you know, broadly talked about. And yeah. so six this was not, this, it like did not take. The park or something, six and 19, that's a, that's right. a lot. Right, it, it did not take an epidemiologist 12 years later to, to figure out this pattern. It was like, oh, wow, like uh, someone dies every third day, <laughs> day at Candlestick Park. <laughs> oh, no. It was a different era. Ben, the first escalator dates back to like the 1890s. So yeah, I, I, th- I think, I think I, there I'm, were escalators. Cause... I can't swear to this. I think that there was originally a plan for the escalator, but it, it didn't end up getting built. It's just in the first phase of construction. So hmm. I think they had the idea. I think uh, I think also they intended to have a drop-off point up near the near the top, and law enforcement said that that you couldn't do that; it would have been a problem. And so there were maybe some m- plans in the works to have had it be less fatal mm. uh, at the time that just didn't get <laughs> brought into it quite right away. So it took some years for them yeah. to fix that. Did you know that Candlestick Park was home to the first ever Kids' Choice Awards in 1988? I'm just <laughs> no. learning stuff on Wikipedia. No, no, I know one of the producers of the Kids' Choice Awards, though, and uh, I've heard <laughs> some some interesting stories about the Kids' Choice Awards. It was the oh. year after John Paul II celebrated a papal mass at Candlestick during his tour of America. There oh. were an estimated 70,000 people in attendance. Man, communion must have taken forever. Huh. <laughs> So any any you got you do you have the whole rundown of non-sports candlestick park events? No, but there's a no, no. 
I'm not being a good helper on the podcast so oh, far, I you guys. Oh, I dropped in my having known the producer who told me interesting <laughs> things about it, and then I refused to say even one interesting thing about it. So I think I'm being very unhelpful. It was it was home to the Beatles' final concert. Sure. Famously, yeah. Famously, mm-hmm. that we knew. The Rolling Stones performed there in 1981. There's a notable events section in the Wikipedia. Jimmy Buffett makes this list for <laughs> reasons. <laughs> Yeah, Van Halen, Metallica, and then Justin Timberlake and JC, Jay Z, and then uh, Paul McCartney performed there in 2014. Uh, that was the stadium's final concert. That's why it makes the list, because otherwise you're like, yeah, well. Well, I'm glad they all made it up Cardiac Hill. I guess they took the escalator. But <laughs> you read about this in a book that's entirely devoted to people dying at ballparks, right? I, that's, I uh, didn't. It's I, called I, Death at the Ballpark. Right. I, I sourced it further with that book. I think that originally I think I read about it in James Hirsch's book about uh, Willie Mays, uh-huh. which is also the source, I think, for at least one other thing of these details and i i mentioned while reading that book that every single page has three things that you want to write down and then tell someone else later so that was one of them yeah so people die at at all sorts of ballparks and uh, i guess the the death rate for the cardiac events at at probably all ballparks are maybe higher than i don't know people doing whatever they would do on a normal day because you've got to go out and you've got to exert yourself to get to the park and then you're cheering and as you mentioned in that same book there is a story about someone who died that was this was pre candlestick this was right? pre this was seal yeah. seal stadium right so 1958 this was This was a doubleheader between the Giants and the Dodgers, and there was a close play at the plate during the 15th inning in the second game. The score was tied, and the bases were loaded, etc., and there was a a man, a police chief, actually, who who died. Yeah, the police chief. He was the chief of police in San Francisco. And uh, yeah, he got, I'll just take over the story from here. Mm -hmm. He got uh, so excited by a rally and a close play at the plate in which I think the giant, the potential winning run was, I think, called out at the plate. He, uh, He had a heart attack and he died right there in the stands behind home plate with his wife alongside him. A priest came and uh, read him his I did did I say this I think a priest yeah. actually came and read him his final rites is that what it, the mm-hmm. phrase is in the stands and yeah. uh, and then the Giants won the next inning in the 16th inning and this was a uh, the police chief is himself uh, very interesting and probably could have uh, you know could I don't know if there is a book about him but there could be a book about him he was a uh, he was a reformer he had his climb up the ranks had been slowed because he refused to go along with some police corruption. And the first thing he did when he came in was basically reassign everybody of rank in the whole department. Um, and like just a few months later, he had the heart attack. It was uh, it was a shame because it, it if not for that, you you don't know. I mean, he might be the sort of police chief who would have, uh, you know, streets named after him in San Francisco today. It's not a bad way to go, really, if you have to go somewhere, if you have to have a heart attack at some point. It's uh, not so bad to have it in an extra inning game when someone just did something good and is rounding third and heading for home. Although I guess uh, if you even have time to think about it, it's probably frustrating not to know how the play turned out or because the the runner was (laughs) called out, game was still tied. So he never even found out that uh, the Giants won in the next inning. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Right. So so that happened in in 1958? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to ask a totally unrelated question, which is, What's the like period of time one has to to wait before one can make jokes about something like this? Um, uh, probably like th- I would say like thirty five years. Mm. 
So then you're just venturing into like what kind of taste do you want to publicly admit to, right? Uh, d- That's the territory you're you're, you're scooching yeah. up on. It sort of depends you, on what a, the an unnamed the you, is, not a specific yeah. Meg, but a general you. Do you want to try it on us on no. G Chat and we'll let you know? <laughs> no, because like what sounds if sounds like uh, you were thinking of something though. No, what do you if, go? It's on your mind, Meg. <laughs> I was just gonna say. I, I don't even have a joke. This is one I'd have to workshop in Gchat, but it it strikes me as uh, there being a bad pace of play joke. Mm. Oh yeah, yeah, that's yeah. pretty I bad. Had a, you know, I, I had a joke the a couple of the last day of the season a couple of years ago. I tweeted something like over the uh, what was it? it I, something like over the course of three hours, over the course of a three hour game, like eighteen thousand people will die worldwide. Over the course of a four-hour game, 24,000 people will die. And so it's pretty important that Major League Baseball shorten games. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then I tweeted it, and then I panicked and thought, I don't know if, if this is nice. And I don't... So I deleted it because I figured, and so I deleted it right away. But now mm. I'm, and I said I'm deleting this, but I'm probably gonna read. I'm probably gonna tweet it again someday. Mm-hmm. Or and say so it now I just, I've just said it. <laughs> yeah. All right. So a couple other things you mentioned. Hideki Matsui asked his hitting coach to listen to his swing over the phone uh-huh. and diagnose his swing from Tokyo based on that one. the whoosh that, yeah. <laughs> that his bat made <laughs> going through the air. Yeah. I couldn't decide whether to do this as like 50 things I learned this year and not give any context to them mm. or to do like like nine or so and then and then get more background information so that there'd be extra details. And then the Hideki Matsui one was really the 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 one that I was torn about because I didn't think that I could I didn't think I could squeeze it into the nine, because what else are you going to say <laughs> about that? But that was the main reason I was thinking of hanging on to the 50 format, just so that I could say that sentence. Yeah. I could understand that maybe a, a swing, if, if you were in person, because we've talked and Rob Arthur has written about how the, the crack of the bat, the sound actually is different. You can detect that. So maybe you could say the same about the the whoosh that the bat makes. Like people will say that about a fastball, for instance, making a sound if it's fast enough. And so if your swing is slower than usual because your mechanics are screwed up or something, then maybe it could make some actual qualitatively different sound. But I doubt you could diagnose it on the phone <laughs> international right. call it just doesn't seem like the the resolution of the audio would be high enough for you to tell one whoosh from another i also like that it's not did it make a loud enough whoosh but it was it the proper the pr- whoosh proper whoosh yeah. did it have did this whoosh have the right kind of topography to it <laughs> yeah <laughs> I think we have to talk about Toothpick Sam. This yeah, one. Toothpick Sam. We killed gotta, me. Oh, I don't. Goodness. I'm shocked it didn't kill Toothpick Sam. <laughs> oh, I mean, I, I probably a lot of people are aware that there was a player named Sam Toothpick Jones who was a pitcher in the 50s. And presumably he, he got his nickname because he often had a toothpick. And that is true. And I was just imagining a, a person who had a toothpick a lot, like more than the normal person. It never occurred to me that this this pitcher pitched with a toothpick. In his mouth. Pitched, pitched with a toothpick in his mouth. Yep. And so when I, I learned that, I went through a 
sort of a month-long process of trying to figure out how this was not as as anxiety-inducing as I thought. So, <laughs> like, I, everybody, I any time I would, like, be talking to someone who was in their 60s or 70s, I'd say, so, like, tell me about toothpicks back in the day. <laughs> they were really soft, right? Like, they, they were soft and flimsy. People back then would have had toothpicks, and they would have been, like, non-dangerous, right? And they'd go, no, they were just like they are now, and I... I'd I love say, that you emailed a toothpick scholar. A I did, toothpick I, historian. I did. I was. I had to check this out. Yeah, and so, uh, so this, the, yeah, uh, this toothpick expert Henry Petrosky told me that if anything, probably toothpicks were more dangerous back then. But they were. Some people just had them when they were pitching. <laughs> so. And uh, so I, I doubted whether he actually pitched with this and a couple, um, you know, again, asking people in their 60s and 70s, they said, no, that seems in character with somebody in the 1950s. They, they could buy it. There are all these little bits of evidence that, yes, he did. And it all added up to, yes, he always had a toothpick, even when he was pitching or, or generally did. And thanks to the author of his Sabre bio, Rory, Rory Costello, Costello, who wrote a, a nice biography of Toothpick Jones, he mentioned, of course, that he got the nickname for always having a toothpick, but did not specify whether he pitched with it. And so I emailed him and said, did you not specify because you you don't think he did? He said, no, he did. He definitely did. <laughs> and then he dug up an extra anecdote for me that's a bonus anecdote, not even in the bio, which is, blah, 1959 against Milwaukee, Hank Aaron's blooper dropped into short left field. Jim Davenport and Ed Brusoud, Brusoud collided. Aaron motored for third and Jones covered. Aaron came in hard, spiking the pitcher's right knee and driving Sam's toothpick into his throat. <laughs> How did spiking his knee drive the toothpick into his throat? The whole point is that a toothpick is balanced precariously. It is, it's, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to have been driven in with a hammer. You just, you're running and, and the toothpick is bobbing. It's a it's bobbing all, It's all squishy in there. Everything except your teeth, it's all squishy. Oh it's my vulnerable. guys, I'm cringing here. Vulnerable. I'm like almost sick to my stomach thinking about this. Yeah, the back of his throat. That sounds so okay, painful. So he- and then the- he kept pitching. <laughs> well, okay, but so here is here is the the really important question that we have to ask Rory. Did he then put another toothpick <laughs> in his mouth when he yeah, went back question. out? Oh. Right. So the trainer took the pick out, and then Jones, Jones and pitched a complete it. game. And, yeah, he uh, looked at it, and he was like, this is still good because yeah. it's made of titanium. <laughs> I hate it. I hate <laughs> it. Oh, oh boy. Oh. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. I think that was all I wanted to get all to, right. unless Sounds there's anything good. else. Okay. So this is, is this what, the third year that you've done the defining memory of the year? And, yes. Okay. And we've had you on to talk about it, I think, during the Jeff era each of those times. So going back to 2017, which I guess was the first time you wrote about it, and also we discussed it, that just sort of hammers home how hard it is to do this exercise and tell what will be the thing that is remembered about the current year. Because, of course, the defining memory of 2017 most likely is something that we found out about just a couple months ago, right? Mm-hmm. This yeah. That's going to be the year that the Astros banged on the trash can for all time. And yep. we didn't know that they banged on the trash can at that time. So there may be something else we don't know about 2019 that we will find out about in the future that will render this entire discussion irrelevant. You went back in, a, in another article and, and found the defining memory of each year and how many of them would you say were things that were known right away? I mean, were they all big stories for the most part, other than like 
you know, the Black Sox scandal you mentioned in this article is another example of something that came to light later. But that's that's the exception, right? Hmm. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, the the Black Sox scandal actually came to light later. And so it wasn't even known at mm-hmm. the end of, of that year. But then you also have the in-between, which I think is very common, which is that the, you know the thing happened, but you don't yet know that it's historically significant. You don't know, for instance, that it's going to be the last time that that happens. Or you, like, obviously, 1908, Cubs win their last World Series for a century was not big news at the time. Like, that, that was just worlds, a, a team won the World Series. It, you would never have guessed that 1908 would be remembered for that purpose. And then sometimes you, you just, I don't know, things age a lot of this is is things aging nicely you know they the weirdness of it as i put in the article the weirdness ferments and over the course of decades it becomes a story that gets retold and retold whereas other stories for for who knows what reason just don't get retold or they lose their their mystery so i don't know i mean i i'm looking at just uh i don't know there's like nine on my screen right now and i don't know if any of these would have been considered at the time to be something that would be memorialized for a hundred years. Well, maybe they would be. I don't know. Like Hack Wilson driving in 190 runs, later known to be 191. (laughs) Probably yes, but Jackie Mitchell, the teenage girl who struck out Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig in an exhibition. I don't know if that would have been... Babe Ruth calling his shot, I don't think was a big deal at the time. If I'm remembering this correctly, I think I wrote about this later, that it seems that it took some years before the mystery of that made it such a huge deal that there were other Babe Ruth anecdotes at the time that were covered a lot more in newspapers in the moment than the the called shot was, and we mostly have forgotten some of those Babe Ruth anecdotes. Carl Hubble striking out the Hall of Famers, yes, but you wouldn't have known they were Hall of Famers at the time. There was no Hall of Fame, for one thing. (laughs) Uh, But also, like, was Joe Cronin, like, a you know, a bankable name at the time? I'm not sure if he was. uh, So... Who knows if that would have been the first night game was played would have been big. The first Hall of Fame. Yes. Joe Medwick winning the last NL Triple Crown. No one would have thought that would be the last NL Triple Crown. Consecutive no hitters. Yes. Lou Gehrig retired. Yes. Bob Feller's fastball being timed with a motorcycle would not have been. So I don't know. It's hard to say. I would guess that most are known, but only about half are appreciated. Mm-hmm. The Billy okay. Goat curse probably was not known nor appreciated. Yeah. Well, all right. So how should we do this? Are we we're going to try to decide what will be the defining memory of 2019? And you've already written about this. And so you have a framework that you use for this. So I don't know if we should just go one by one, your categories of things that could be the most enduring memory or, or whether you want to approach this some other way. I'm your guest. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so <laughs> I I mostly agree with uh, what you said in the article. There are a few other possibilities that I might bring up, but I guess we can just uh, do it the way that, that you did with the categories. That's a nice way to organize things. So your first category is just an incredible achievement. So some really fun fact, some big number, some historic accomplishment that a player had. And as we've talked about, this is kind of a a down era for records, at least for individual player records that we care about. And 
That continued to be true this year with, uh, as you mentioned, Pete Alonso's rookie home run record being probably the most memorable one. But even that is just a, a two-year-old record that it broke, and it's kind of part of the whole juiced ball year, which uh, maybe that just gets subsumed by that larger thing. So. You did bring up Steven Strasburg's postseason run. I don't know if that could do it. Mariano Rivera being unanimously elected to the Hall of Fame. If he is the only one who ever gets unanimously elected, that will be something that we bring up forever. But that might just open the floodgates. And I guess we'll remember it as the thing that opened the floodgates, too. Although, technically, I guess that happened in 2018, right? That the actual votes were cast. But he was then inducted this year. Wait, announced in 2019, though. Yeah. yeah, it's announced yeah. in January. In, in January. Right. Yes, right. Yeah, but you're correct that the votes were cast. Mm-hmm. Famously yeah. have to be in before the postmark <laughs> yes. by the 31st. Yeah, so presume that in the next 50 years, there are maybe 10 more players that go in unanimously. Do you? How much do you think that being the first will be remembered? Mm-hmm. I think it will be remembered because it was such a longstanding... It was just such a long-standing bit of fussiness. Yep. And being the first one to break the break the seal on that fussiness, especially for someone who was a reliever, I think the confluence of those things will make it a thing that we remember, particularly if Jeter is the second unanimous selection because then you also have this like Yankees core four dynasty mm-hmm. component to it. So I think that it'll be a a piece of of trivia that we remember for a long, long time. I think we'll remember it because we remember the era when that was an unattainable thing. We will. Yeah, when you go decades into the future, if it's just the norm at that point, then no one will know it was ever not the norm. And so no one will care. Yeah, I Mm. probably though, I think that I think you're right that the fussiness that predates it will probably survive because when whenever people... When someone gets elected with 98% of the vote and a baseball fan will wonder, oh, well, what percentage did Willie Mays get? And they see that it was less than 100. That requires the explanation that, well, until 2019, there was this weird thing where voters would refuse to do it. <laughs> and so then there is I, – I, you will have to tell that story of, well – They purged some of the voters, and then there was more transparency, and gradually the old norms began to fall away. And in 2019, everything came together with this player that was, you know, fairly uncontroversial, and everybody, you know, loved him, and and there it was. And then from that point on, it became normal. So, yeah, probably Mariano Rivera in 2019 will still get talked about as the the curse breakers in a a way. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, and what else did you mention is uh, the the contracts, the big record contracts, Trout's extension, Garrett Cole's free agent contract. Those, as you mentioned, they could be the big contracts on the block for years to come, but I don't know that any contract really has the staying power to be the defining memory of a year unless – I don't know, unless it turns out to be the biggest ever because uh, something changes with the currency and uh, inflation reverses itself and the numbers get smaller instead of bigger. But because they just inexorably get bigger, your your record contracts always get topped by something else. So Yeah, and we're bad at inflation. Right. Uh, yes. So I, I totally agree with that. I also, though, was stuck on the fact that I do know that Babe Ruth got paid more than the president, and I do know mm-hmm. that Joe DiMaggio was the first $100,000 player. And those things 
are obviously dwarfed by later contracts as well and weren't even you know nearly as big relatively speaking as as contracts would become and and yet they have survived for decades somehow i think that the fact that they were that they were actually that they were not just more zeros on numbers that i can't possibly relate to probably is mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why they did survive longer and this was the the story of babe ruth getting paid more than the president you don't even know what the dollar figure was there. It's right. the it's the fact is what makes it memorable. Whereas uh, you know Mike Trout being the first four hundred million dollar player is not going to be interesting to somebody who has seen five hundred and six hundred and seven hundred million dollar players. So I think that those are very unlikely, unless, as you say, they for some reason persist much much longer. A Rod's is pretty. A-Rod's $252 million contract, I noted, is the one modern contract that seems like it has generational staying power. Mm-hmm. And I'm not exactly sure why, partly because I think partly it's that, what, it wasn't topped for more Long. than a decade? Yeah. yeah, it just it blew away everything else, right, by a lot, which and, uh, you could also say about these contracts, too. Yeah, they, you could. They raised the bar quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, you could. I think A-Rod's deal is the reason we might remember Trouts, but it'll be sort of an inverse thing. So part of why I think we remember A-Rod Steel was because of how long it was a record, right? Part of it is the eventual team switch mm-hmm. and then the subsequent large contract after the team switch. And then the other reason we remember is because A-Rod, you know, had the, the year-long suspension and became something of a jerk in the public imagination. And I think that the flip of that might be why we end up remembering Trouts as a number that's very big, but in hindsight ends up looking kind of small compared to Trout as Trout, right? Because mm-hmm. the way we'll remember it is the greatest baseball player of his generation and potentially of any generation only made how much? Yeah. So that possibility seems, you know, n- non-zero to me, in part because we are bad at inflation and keeping in mind when we compare numbers over decades. And so when someone who is less good than Trout, which seems likely, gets more money than Trout, which also seems likely, we're going to look back and be like, that Mike Trout sure was a bargain. Mm -hmm. So that might happen. But that also might be one that, you know, people like us remember, but general fans don't. So I'm going to concede that possibility also. Yeah. The other thing, too, is that A-Rod's deal was, if you do adjust for inflation, was was still much larger than Mike Trout's. Yes. So probably for those 10 years, he was not just paid more than anybody else, but but really his contract still could shock you in a, in a way 10 years later. It shocked a lot of people. And then that also then introduced the debate where A-Rod was getting paid all this and was still the best player in baseball. He was yeah. not remembered for being highly paid and a flop. No. He was highly paid and the best player in baseball. And yet, because the number was so big, people had a hard time figuring out whether he was a bargain yes. or which, which the I mean, a lot of the evidence suggests he was. And I think that the baseball prospectus position in around that time was that he was or whether he was a curse and whether you couldn't possibly win with a player making that much, which was the decision that the Rangers ultimately made, the probably the wrong decision that the Rangers ultimately made. So... Uh, it had, in a in a in a way, it sort of uh, stood in for one of the uh, for a couple of the big questions of that decade, as far as analysis goes. Yeah, and just statistically speaking, I don't know that there were any seasons that really reached some sort of indelible level. You mentioned Yelich and Trout and Garrett Cole. Cole's probably the closest, just because yeah. Yeah. he had that run where he was just getting double digit strikeout totals for 
I don't remember, was it 15, 16 starts in a row, something like that? It was a record and it extended into the postseason. Again, that's the kind of thing that if strikeout rates continue to rise, that might not seem as remarkable in retrospect. But he had one of those runs that really is not equaled or surpassed all that often. But, you know, it's like maybe that turns into like the Jake Arrieta run or something, which is certainly memorable. But I don't know if it is the defining memory of of that year. So kind of depends what happens with Garrett Cole and with strikeout rates in general Mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah, so he, he could very easily end up being the last 300 strikeout pitcher, which yeah. might end up mattering to history more than his strikeout rate, which will, I think, almost certainly be topped or at least nearly equaled many times in the next couple decades. Mm-hmm. All right. And your category 1B is incredible team. And this is, I guess, where we start talking about the Astros, <laughs> not just for being a, a really good at baseball team, but you know, being really bad at everything else. I, I would just like to interrupt my uh, and correct myself. I, I sort of didn't really realize that the 300 strikeout pitcher is actually now normal. So from 2002 to 2014, there were none. And of course, innings were going down, even as strikeout rates went up. Did you know that Clayton Kershaw struck out 301 batters? four years ago no i didn't no. either I probably did it i time, mean exactly but... <laughs> but i had forgotten and then chris yeah. sale did two years ago and then that max scherzer max scherzer did last uh, in 2018 and then of course verlander and cole both did so that's five in the last five years mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. all right go ahead astros yeah so astros so <laughs> up until the world series we were talking about the astros as perhaps one of the greatest and most talented teams of all time. And they do stand out according to some stats. But obviously that then got dwarfed by the Brendan Taubman story, by the sign-stealing story, by the fact that they lost that World Series. And so now it kind of comes down to they're still in many ways the defining team of the era just because they were in the headlines the most, whether it was for being innovative in positive ways, being innovative in negative ways, and just generally being villains in a way that teams often aren't. They were villains not just for being good, but for being bad in a lot of ways too. And so I don't know whether we can say that's a 2019 story or whether it's just one of the decades stories or the second half of the decade was certainly the Astros. So I just I don't know whether it will be localized enough in 2019. I guess the best argument is that this is the year that they really broke bad. This is the year that we learned, I guess, the depths of the the evil that lurked inside the hearts of the Astros. And even though the sign stealing that we found out about was localized in 2017 as far as we know now, although we may very well learn different in the next couple months, this is the year that it became the biggest story in baseball and was exposed. So... That's the question, I guess. Do you remember when it happened or do you remember when you found out that it had happened or do we just remember them because they were on our lips and on our keyboards for weeks and months at a time for various reasons? Yeah. So there's definitely going to be books written about this era of Astros baseball. And the question is whether... There's already been one, but yes. Yeah, there will be be books written about them for 100 years because of how much they represented the changes in baseball in this decade and because of how talented they were and because of just narratively to go from 2012 to 2019. Mm -hmm. It's just, I mean, for a writer, it's it's got a great arc. 
And so the question is whether the book is primarily focused around what they did in 2017 when they had their most success or in 2019, which is when they kind of reached their peak plot. They were both as talented as they ever were, arguably their best team. Game seven of the World Series, everything, I mean, if you were making a, a plot, it was incredible, along with all the ways that they, like you say, broke bad this year. And so in that case, you could very easily imagine 2019 being remembered as, as I put it, the kind of the year that they reached peak peak Astros-ness and you know, maybe also being in some ways the end of, of this little dynasty. We don't know how good they'll be next year, but if they were to win, say, 96 games and get knocked out in the ALDS, then we might see that as just sort of the beginning of the decline where the arrow runs from 2011 to 2019, like when they reached their their low to when they reached their high. Uh, so, it's, I mean, it's such a significant season, but I, I, yeah, like you say, like I mm-hmm. say, I don't know if we'll remember this season specifically. I think we will, though. I think, I think 2019 will. is a pretty memorable season in this storyline, and I, I definitely think that this team is the team that will get remembered from the decade. Not from the decade. This team will be remembered of the decade, many yes. decades from now. I think it'll be the 2019 squad, and I think that for two reasons. The first of which is I don't think that, and we've talked about this at various points on the pod, like it is very difficult for the Astros to now demonstrate to anyone's satisfaction that the sign stealing stopped in 2017, right? Like I think we, like you said, what we know about seems to have happened in the 2017 season, although we might get different and more clear insight in the coming months as the investigation progresses. But everybody is sitting there thinking that they figured out another way to do something along these lines, right? So so I think that people will just kind of assume that it was a continued course of action, even if there isn't hard evidence to support that at this moment. And here's the other thing, and this might just be my brain being kind of squishy in the off season. So a thing that happened to the 2019 Astros is that they uh, were able to boast both the AL Rookie of the Year and the Cy Young. And right. I didn't remember until like five minutes ago. I didn't remember that. They, o- they went two for three and were almost three for three yeah if and they had gone three for three they would have been the first team to do that and, mm-hmm. and that might have added to the yeah. case here but yeah. yeah but in a weird way them it just was so overshadowed by all the rest of it and we all sat there and were a little relieved that Bregman didn't win because we didn't want to have to litigate that nonsense forever We didn't Mm -hmm. want to. We didn't want to do it. We were relieved. So I think the thing that we will remember about this team is the break bad, the moment where we thought, ha-ha. Yeah. And where we saw that the rest of baseball was like very keen to pile on a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I wonder how much this depends on the punishment and what is revealed in this investigation. Because if it comes out that, let's say, MLB concludes, well, it was only the Astros and it was only in 2017 and we're taking some draft picks away and we're fining them, that would not make this any more sensational than it has already been. But if they come out and say, well, the Astros were actually doing it all three of these years, And by the way, while we were investigating the Astros, we turned up all these other teams that were doing something along similar lines. And so maybe it then becomes like the story of of baseball right now is just sign stealing. All the teams are sign stealing. Or if there's some kind of uh, really harsh punishment that we can't even imagine, like, you know, if if the title were vacated or something, which I don't think there's a chance of that happening. But if that happened or or even if like Jeff Luno is is banned from the game forever or or players are suspended or something. 
it or A.J. Hinch, if there's just some, you know, really unprecedented draconian punishment here that we can't even see coming, maybe that makes it an even, even bigger story or, you know, it gets bigger instead of smaller. Yeah, I just think that it is part of a, you know, the end of this season was a really big bummer for baseball sort of generally, and this was the most dominant story amongst all the bummer stories, and I think that vibe will persist for a while, although I don't know if other people will still be sad about it the way that we all were at the end of the season. But if they are, I think they remember it first and foremost for the Astros. So I think Mm -hmm. it'll be a 2019 kind of deal. Yeah. All right. And we'll get to the Nationals uh, a little later on in this discussion. So so (laughs) 1C is uh, incredible single play or sequence of plays, often aided by iconic photo or video images. And you mentioned Howie Kendrick here. So... When The Ringer did its uh, annual post on best sports memories or favorite sports memories or whatever from this year, I wrote about Howie Kendrick, and I think Howie Kendrick's Homer has a, a solid case, which you lay out here. It, it is one of the biggest home runs or hits of all time, just by championship win probability added. It has a good story associated with it because it's Howie Kendrick. It was so momentous, and it sort of slew the Astros, who we were just talking about being the villain. If that was one of the big stories of the year, then slaying the villain should be one of the big stories of the year, too. So there is some potential here, given how exciting the Nationals win was, and maybe that's the story. Maybe it's just the Nationals won. But if you want to pick one moment, it's the Kendrick Homer, and the Kendrick Homer was uh, really exciting. Yeah, I just don't feel it. No. Mm-hmm. I think if I Sam, I think you were right that it being on the road really undercuts it. I think if he yeah. were if he were at home, there'd be a little monument to that. Like they would paint the they'd paint the screen a special color in that spot. They'd they'd commemorate it in a way that was physical and lasting and sort of tactile. But because it happened at Minute Maid, they're going to be very keen to forget. And uh, it didn't even, like he said, it didn't hit the pole itself, which I think changes it. I don't think we'll, I think we'll remember the Nationals winning and we'll remember them having to come from behind at sort of each stage. But I don't think that this specifically will persist in the way that other like World Series stuff has. Yeah, Mm -hmm. the being on the road, it really, I don't know how much it hurts. It feels to me like it really hurts a lot just because the highlight is home run and then just a silent crowd. And you might get a crowd shot as he rounds the bases of somebody looking sad. But it's not like the just explosion that happens when you do this at home where it's so loud and you could cut to any part of the stadium and see pandemonium, and it feels like you are there and that you're in it. So I do think that hurts it. And also, I don't know. I just don't feel it. I don't feel like it It, it was the seventh inning, not the ninth, which I, I think if you had, if, if it hadn't been Howie Kendrick, but it had been Anthony Rendon in mm. the seventh, then maybe. And if it hadn't been the seventh, but it had been Howie Kendrick in the ninth, then maybe. Yeah. But yeah. Howie Kendrick in the seventh, it just, I don't no. feel it. And I, I I feel a little sad how Rajai Davis home run in 2016 is already kind of falling out of the public yeah. memory, which I think is probably the greatest home run moment of my lifetime. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, at least since Kirk Gibson. 
And other people will, of course, say David Freeze was better. And I think in uh, in an end of the decade rap, I think I acknowledge that as well. But R- Rajai Davis against Heraldus Chapman, to me, is like the most shocking and incredibly turnaround home run of the last, you know, 25 years. But it was Rajai Davis and it was the eighth. It was the eighth. That one was the eighth. And, uh, and then they lost anyway. And so all these things kind of go against Rajai Davis. Two of the things go against Howie Kendrick, but not the third. Uh, still, though, I think that, that it just it's going to get lost like how Smith got lost. Yeah, I think that that seems right to me, I guess, which is a shame because that was a, a really great moment. So I guess maybe it, it has to be like a legendary player to be a legendary play. Is that do you think that's true? Well, I mean, or like a Mazeroski, or a walk-off. Yeah, I guess. Like Mazeroski's a Hall of Famer. He probably wouldn't be a Hall of Famer without that hit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but he is one. Or you know, you mentioned Carlton Fisk, and he's a, a legendary player even without that home run and that iconic image. And but, it actually hit the pole. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah. he waved. He had to wave. Yeah. yeah. Kurt Gibson, though, not a. Le- I mean, Kurt Gibson's a legend because of the home run, but it was a walk-off. Yeah. And Joe Carter is only a legend because of, to the degree that he is, is only a legend because of the home run, and it was a walk-off. So I think that it needs to be a walk-off, kind of. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. David Freeze, of course, that was a walk-off, and it's probably, I don't know. Some people remember the triple. Some people remember the home run. But the home run was a walk-off. And so anyway, that fits, walk-off. Uh, yeah. Is What's the biggest home run? Obviously, Bobby Thompson was a walk-off, mm-hmm. uh, not a legendary player. What's the biggest home run in history? that wasn't a walk-off? What's the first one you can mem- you can think of? And let's say that any- it has to be before 2000. Can we go back to the first thing? Part of the triple, though, isn't just what it did. It was the gaff. Right, that's it was the Nelson of, Cruz. Right, that's part of why. I mean, we'd probably still remember it, but we it really got seared in there because in addition to being happy for him, we were mortified for Cruz, right? We just had that moment where we were like, oh, no. I would mm-hmm. rather disappear into dust. Yeah, probably the biggest non-walk-off the biggest homers non-walk-off. would be like uh, milestone homers, record homers, yeah. right? Like Hank Aaron's 715th or something. Let's not count those. Not let's, counting let's, those. Yeah, let's talk just for the stakes of the game. What's the biggest stakes of the game home run that wasn't a walk-off? Oh, geez. Hmm. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it, they don't come to mind the way that even like... Francisco Cabrera's walk-off single and Kirby Puckett's walk-off home run come to mind. I don't even know. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Hal Smith. Hal <laughs> Smith, and which no nobody really remembers Hal Smith. Yeah. No, it's the biggest hit in history. <laughs> yeah. And Aww. I have probably seen it at the top of that leaderboard fifty times. And even this time, I went, "Oh, that's right, Hal Smith. When was that?" <laughs> so, right. and I don't think most people remember it unless yeah. they, you know, lived through it. I will say that like uh, Kirk Gibson was the MVP that year when he hit yeah. that home run and Joe Carter, not a Hall of Famer and his reputation as a player has suffered in retrospect as we've evaluated him in different ways than they did at the time. But he was a, a perennial all-star and, and an MVP contender in a few years and a, always a 100 RBI guy. So they were perceived as great players at the time that they hit those home runs, I think which you can't really say about Howie Kendrick. So I think they still support the idea that legendary players have legendary hits, but maybe that's just because, I don't know, there aren't that many legendary hits and usually 
good players get the hits. <laughs> so that could be why. But I'm trying to think of like a truly, I, I guess Bobby Thompson, as you said, is is the best by like a good player, but not really great player who mm-hmm. had a, an all-time great hit. All right. So the next category is uh, the moment the timeline begins or the moment modern baseball begins. So like a, a watershed moment that marks a change in eras, let's say. And so you proposed here your home run derby scenario where <laughs> home run derby becomes the, the breakout sport that surpasses baseball. This was the year that would mark the beginning of that because of the big $1 million prize pool. I still love that you, a person who like has fiercely advocated for home runs being boring highlights, wrote this take. It is one of my favorite things. <laughs> I don't even know what my take was, though. It you was... thought they were boring. You thought they no, were bad no, highlights. I remember, th- I remember that. I don't remember what my take is about the Derby. Like I never did figure out what what my <laughs> position on that was. <laughs> I like I have had people. Be. <laughs> I have had people who both thought, "Oh, wonderful! What a scathing." What a scathing piece about like how easily baseball can be commercialized to be ruined or whatever. And then others were like, I love it. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure. what I, I don't remember. I didn't have an opinion while I was writing it. So, mm-hmm. But I like the Derby, though. I do yeah. like the Derby. Yeah. yeah. And then you also mentioned that this could be like a, a year that we remember because of the shift. Because uh, as I noted at some time this year, this was the year when some teams first went over 50% with shifting. So shifting became the norm and the standard alignment, in a sense, became the shift. But I don't know. If I don't know. A, yeah, I, don't I know. wasn't. I wasn't. Neither of those got much. Right. What if <laughs> What if we uh, introduce a smaller moment, which is that I don't know if they were the f- they have to have been the first one. I don't know this for a fact, but it seems impossible that it would not be true. The the Astros didn't intentionally walk a single batter during the regular season. Yeah, mm-hmm. true. And it is very small. It's a mm-hmm. small thing, but you know, I don't know. It's the thing that happened in mm-hmm. this year, in this yeah. calendar year. That's one of the things that happened. And had never happened before. So yeah, yeah, it might never happen again. Who knows? Oh, I know. Yeah, I'll propose a a few here. What if this is is the year that we remember as sort of the the genesis of robot umps? Like, this is the year when robot umps became inevitable, which uh, I think in my mind, maybe it already was, but the introduction to the Atlantic League this year and then the Arizona Fall League and then the announcement that it would be used at some level of the minor leagues next year, which I don't know if that's been confirmed or not, but that was floated at least. So this is kind of the year. Right, yeah. The umpires union said that they would cooperate in some way. Yeah, right. So I think the problem with this is that the first year that robot umps are actually used in yeah. Major League Baseball will probably be the year that, I mean, that will probably be the defining memory of that year and the year that we associate with robot umps. But this year, like this, this year kind of did the harder task maybe of laying the groundwork and showing that it was workable in high level professional games and even affiliated games. So this kind of was a real momentum-changing year when it came to Robotoms, I think. Mm-hmm. It'll be the year that I, whatever year it actually happens, will be the year I reveal myself as a crank. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> could happen too. That will be the year when we all stop fighting over the this hill. fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, I guess it could be the year of expanded netting. Oh. Yeah, that was that was suggested uh, yeah. to me uh, before this. I thought that was a good one. That's uh, good. It, it was the netting was also expanded last year. Yeah. And 2018 was the year that a fan died when they were hit by a ball. 
And that was the first time that had happened in, you know, in like decades. And so, and to be honest, I had already kind of forgotten both of those facts when I started to to write about how 2019 could be the year of the expanded netting. So I ended up mm-hmm. thinking that it probably won't be. But yeah, I think it's a good suggestion. Yeah, it doesn't change the game on the field that much, but... Uh, well, this was the year that it all... Like every team, though, did it, right? So now we're going to have yeah. universal compliance going yep. into 2020 as a result of... Because this year didn't... It wasn't this the year that a little girl got beamed in the head in Houston? Yeah, uh, yeah. was it mm-hmm. in Houston? But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A little girl yeah. did get beamed in the head. Yeah. yeah. And I guess maybe this could also be like the year of youth, the year of young players. I I don't know if it's localized enough in 2019 to be the story of 2019, but if you were talking about the biggest stories of this era in baseball, that seems like one of them. Like this year was uh, the the average batter age this year, Joe Sheehan noted, was 27.9 weighted by plate appearances. and. That's the lowest since 1978, which was the first season following an expansion. So that might turn out to be like a low, a local low, perhaps a low for a long time. We'll see. Or or maybe it will mark the beginning of that being the norm. I don't know. So we've certainly talked about that a lot this year and all the young player seasons that we saw. So I, I just I don't know if it's clear enough that it's a 2019 story but this was a year i think when it reached greater heights and became a a big part of the story of the sport good ones all right moving along bloopers and or extraordinary failures so you mentioned here yasiel puig's post-trade brawl which is a good one and you mentioned chris davis's hitless streak i don't know if there are any others were there any like amazing gifts that will be shared forever nothing's coming to mind right away how how uh, I, I would like to ask a clarifying definitional question which is mm-hmm. how tight a time frame how small a moment do bloopers and or extraordinary failures have to transpire over because we could and this might be uh, i might be um, succumbing to some categorical confusion here just based on where this might otherwise fit but i feel like the overall competitive landscape yeah could potentially be its own extraordinary failure and i'm not just saying that because when you load sam's piece the little um, insert that is next to this is about the tigers and (laughs) then you sit there and you're like well they were very bad yeah, could say extraordinarily I, so. Yeah, at one point I did wonder whether I would write about the four hundred and three or whatever win lo- uh, lost teams and the that basically how the, the 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 worst group of worst teams that we've ever had. Yeah, and I decided that there wasn't enough to write about in the original. What I identified as bloopers and extraordinary failures, which generated this category from the list of determined most memorable things, were. Uh, specific events like Snodgrass Muff and Merkel's Boner. That's mm-hmm. right. <laughs> from Bill Buckner having the ball go through his legs and Bartman mm. getting the foul ball. But I think you could definitely also have included, uh, if I had gone back to, to 1899, I think it is, for instance, definitely the Cleveland Spiders would have been the most memorable of that year. Mm-hmm. And while they were not the most memorable, as I determined it from 1962, I think that the 1962 Mets losing 120 games would also have uh, qualified in many years. Oh, in fact, it was. That is the year that I determined was the expansion. Mets lost 120 games. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's doable, but I we had the Tigers losing 119 a few years ago. So I don't think an individual team 
got there this year, got to that same level of failure. And in a way, there was a, a little bit of safety in numbers for all of them. So unless it gets remembered as a trend, which I don't think it will, because I think that peak tank is also going to go down as the Astros yeah. and the Cubs in the early uh, first half of this decade. Yeah. Ben, what what team did you end up deciding was your team of the decade when you wrote about it? Was it I the Astros? I picked the Astros, which was that was before the sign stealing story yeah. surfaced, and so in a way that made their case weaker. In that maybe they were less deserving of their success. On the other hand, maybe it it made that a better I selection think it made because it stronger. Even yeah, as I mentioned in that piece, I wasn't picking them solely because they were the best or most successful team of the decade, but just because they were kind of the defining team of the decade. And if anything, that whole scandal made them even more associated with with this decade. So. Yeah, but you raise a good point. Like maybe it is just the lopsidedness, the fact that there were 800 plus win or loss teams, which was a record. And as Craig Edwards noted, this was just the most, uh, I don't know, stratified year when it comes to the standings and the standard deviation of winning percentage was higher than it had been, I think, at any point, I guess, in the expansion era. So that is something that was a big story this year. And Maybe it will then recede and it won't be as big a story or maybe we'll remember it as really weird, a strange time in baseball when there were a lot of great teams and terrible teams. So I think that's that's possible. It's a contender. When Puig fought the Pirates on the deadline, when that happened, I uh, I couldn't write about it because I was very busy editing some things about that because it happened on the deadline. And I think that it is the... The story I didn't get to write in 2019 that I am the saddest about because <laughs> yeah. how did we talk about anything else this year except for Puig deciding to fight a team while he had been traded and didn't know it's <laughs> yeah. the best thing that happened in baseball this year. Yeah, and I didn't great. get to write about it because I had to edit. <laughs> Dumb old deadline. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Next category is pathos. So you mentioned Tyler Skaggs here, of course, Skaggs' death and then the no-hitter that uh, his teammates threw when it was his turn in the rotation again. Certainly one of the most memorable stories of this season for bad and good reasons and one that will cause some change and that we're going to get opioid testing will be part of baseball and Perhaps that will be a story of baseball in this decade. It's not really clear how pervasive that is, but it, it could be. Hopefully not. But that was certainly one of the biggest and saddest stories of this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't know if, uh, I mean, are there previous player deaths that were the defining story of that year? Um, I don't think there were in baseball, but if you were to do this in basketball then you would definitely have Len Bias's death Mm -hmm. all right category five disruption of baseball's equilibrium this is where you put the ball and this is where you discuss the ball in 2017 and as you said at the time kind of depends whether this ends up being the high watermark or not so we know now that 2017 is not and was surpassed by 2019 And this was the year when it became even bigger part of the discourse than it had been before because we have ways to study these things and it was reported in real time and the ball change in the postseason was a big story and throughout the year it was a big story. So again, this depends on what will happen in 2020 and thereafter. But if this is the peak of the high home run rate era, then maybe that's the story of the season. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I feel a lot more strongly that about this than I did in 2017. And again, it depends on it not going up even more as it did in 2017. And in 2017, I thought, well, it's probably going to go up more or or it's going to hang out. At the time, I think maybe I thought it was just going to hang out at that level for like six years. And so 2017 would just be part of that general juiced ball era. And then maybe 2015 would be remembered more as the moment that the spike first began. But I uh, having no <laughs> now that we know how much it fluctuates and how chaotic this whole thing is. I feel more like it could go anywhere from here. It's not going to hang around like this for six years and that it probably will go down next year and that 2019 will forever live as this weird, crazy outlier year. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, it, as you noted, this this was the year where, you know, a casual fan watching a broadcast was going to hear about the ball being different, right? It seemed to permeate the mm -hmm. broader discourse around the game in a way that was still only partially true in prior seasons, even though I think a lot of people were noting the the spike in home runs. I think we had we had a plausible, even though we have learned the degree to which it influenced the spike in home runs relative to other things, namely the ball itself. But there were these other plausible sounding explanations, right? Batters are changing their approach. We like launch angle. And so people were, I think the explanations were more spread out. And so it hadn't broken through. But now like you watch a you know, you watch a, a baseball game, just a random baseball game on a Tuesday, and the odds are you're going to hear it mentioned on the broadcast at least mm -hmm. one time. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that 2019 might be the year where we're like, no, really, it was the ball's funky, especially yeah. because they own, the league owns a partial stake in Rawlings now. So I think that not only is the explanation of the ball itself more sort of cohesive in people's mind, but the inclination to sort of point a finger and say, well, hey, why aren't you doing something about this? guys is also more sort of prevalent so i think 2019 might end up being the the year it was mm -hmm. such an educational year for us for all of us to learn about the ball to learn about the manufacturing to yeah. learn about what changed in 2015 what changed this year to to learn what, as it's happening to learn within weeks or days that it's happening to be almost keeping score of the ball through rob arthur's tweets before this, a juiced ball felt like a lot closer to like the theory that the lottery, the in the NBA lottery, they froze the cards or whatever, you know, like <laughs> yeah. sort of like we all have these sort of conspiracy theories that we choose to believe or not believe based on whether we think it's more fun to believe them or not believe them. And it was something funky was happening with the ball in, in 2017. We sort of knew that, but we didn't know enough to really discuss it like adults <laughs> and now we do it's just such a part of the game right now we discuss what the ball is doing today and what it meant for a particular play in a particular game it's it's all out in the open we're having this discussion more than mlb seems to be having this discussion mm -hmm. and I, I i do think that in a in a way the the, the uh, variation that we now know about from ball to ball from batch to batch will never again leave our consciousness and that this will be the year that our relationship with baseball changed. And I thought Zach Cram's article, which was headlined the year the baseball became an unreliable narrator, I that was the most jealous of a phrase I've yeah. been this year. I wanted to have <laughs> yeah, written that Zach phrase did, and that Zach article well. so badly. Yeah, Zach <laughs> did well with that.
Yeah. Can I ask a, a sort of related question that you don't have to answer? And in fact, I just want to put in both of your brains and then we can try to return to like six months from now, even though I will probably not remember. Sure. So this is related to conspiracy theories. So I, I don't know if the two of you have had this experience when talking to people who work for teams. I will not betray any specific people nor the specific conspiracy theories to which they ascribe, but I've heard just a really wild range of things that the Astros are supposedly doing. And I would like to state for the record that all of them sound completely ludicrous to me, and I don't think any of them are true. But I want you to think about over the course of the season the craziest, most the the most wild thing that you hear about the Astros where you for a moment think, I wonder if that's true. I want you to think about it the whole year. I want it to okay. be in the back of your noggin when you're talking to people and they bring up the Astros and they're like, it's it's the men who speak with goats. And you're like, yeah, man, <laughs> they're doing that. That's a thing they're doing. This is just, I want it to be in your noggin because I think that the goalpost is going to move in an appreciable way. And mm. I it just I think that we think a lot of things about the ball that may or may not be true, but they seem more plausible now, regardless of their veracity, because of all the rigmarole and uncertainty and variation. So I just have a have a little astros thought in the back of your brain every single day for the rest of the uh, off season and season. Okay. I okay. could believe that the Astros were actually flooding the zone with all of this so that we aren't able to pick out which ones are real. That's a great answer. That's <laughs> a great answer. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I just and I, I want to make clear, I'm not I'm not saying any of them are true. I think that a lot of them are probably wrong. And I think that the ones that are true are probably not the sole province of the Houston Astros. Like a lot of teams are doing a lot of weird squishy stuff. But we're gonna we're gonna be inclined to believe some wild stuff and so i just want you to think about it all right I'm, i've officially had my second cup of coffee so we're cooking with gas now you guys we're up to the last two categories here so the second <laughs> to last one is when the larger world intersects with baseball or vice versa so you mentioned baby shark here and you mentioned the major league baseball versus minor league baseball story and bernie sanders getting involved in that but as you also note that is probably more of a 2020 story and perhaps will turn out to be not as big a story as the leaking of the initial position was if MLB does walk that back, which it seems like it's attempting to do now, if that turns out to have been a negotiation tactic or at least uh, an initial position that hugely backfired in, in the public realm and we don't actually get a ton of teams contracted, then maybe that won't be a big story, but it could be. But seems like if it is, it'll be a bigger story next year. So, yeah, I don't know if there's anything else that, that fits in there. Can I? So I... I thought about this one a great deal because I think that this is a, an important category and I don't I want to know how you think this offseason affects this because it felt like there was a broader understanding within the public consciousness of the sort of the power dynamics that are present in baseball and there has always been an adversarial relationship between labor and ownership and there has often been an adversarial relationship say between teams and the municipalities that house them and, and give them physical homes often at taxpayer expense and so these dynamics are not new but it felt as if there was a, a calcifying of that dynamic as as both adversarial and likely to come to a really disruptive, potentially disruptive end around maybe the CBA negotiations, but possibly before that. And I think that this fits in the the minor league 
contraction thing fits into that. Our understanding of labor from last off season fits into that. And I wonder how, if at all, the fact that this off season has so far been much faster moving and pretty lucrative on the free agent side might temper some of that stuff for this year, or does it just kick the ball down, you know, advance the ball further? What's the expression I'm looking for? Kicking the can down the road? There we go. (laughs) Yeah. Oh no, the second cup of coffee. Very fickle. I'm going to answer just by reading what Zachary Levine wrote to me when I asked him for his thoughts on this topic because he put it very well. And I think before I read that, I think that it is true that it is a major story, maybe maybe one of the major stories of the season, but it is so squishy that it's hard to imagine that it will be able to be summed up in a sentence 50 years from now, nor sure. that people will remember it for lack of that sentence. But This is what Zach wrote. There's another one that felt like it defined this season more, but it won't be remembered specifically with 2019 because it's been gradually building and might continue to. It might be a bad sample of people that I follow that's creating this feeling, but it seems like 2019 was an unending year of MLB being at odds with fans. Brandon Taubman, the fight against minor league baseball, the record gap of 100 win-loss teams associated with non-competitive behavior by front offices, the ball that everyone hated and MLB lied to us about, etc. It was a year of things that people hated, not to mention the Skaggs tragedy and a team's likely involvement in that. Again, could be the fallacy of being too engrossed in baseball Twitter, but it seemed like the game didn't love people back this year more than ever in my adult life. The counter-argument is that none of this is all that 21st century. Teams were always non-competitive. Teams were much worse to players back in the day. We had strikes as recently as 1995. This may be a relative low for our adult memories, but not an absolute low. Mm-hmm. I think that's very well put. I'm satisfied with that as an answer. Thank you, Zachary, and also Sam. <laughs> all right, and the last category is something weird, something almost literally unbelievable or inexplicable. And this is where you put the Nationals because of their 19-31 and 31 start, because of their many comebacks in every round of the playoffs almost, and because of whom they overcame their opponents in the playoffs. It was one of the, the great playoff runs and comebacks by a team that started the season slow. And, and because always... of the, the road games. Right, and because mm-hmm. of, yes, the road team winning every game in that World Series, that will be cited for a long time probably. So... When you put together everything they overcame, the fact that it was the first World Series for the franchise, at least in Washington, you kind of mentioned Strasburg's postseason run and then Baby Shark and Kendrick's home run, all of that together. I mean, that's maybe you can't just lump all of that together, but the Nationals could potentially be the story of 2019. Yeah, could be. Two people tried to convince me that it was the Nationals as as a whole and with all these kind of disparate elements to it that the Nationals will be remembered. I always tend to really resist saying at the end of the year that it's going to be the team that won the World Series. I don't find mm-hmm. that that many World Series champions are memorable after maybe 30 or 40 years. And so I really resist that I know that there's going to be a bias to me remembering the team that just won the World Series a month ago, but that it's probably not going to be them. And uh, I did kind of get talked into the Nationals as having a bunch of things that will all sort of be remembered separately from each other, but their name will keep coming up. And mm-hmm. I could buy it. I didn't ultimately pick them, but I could buy it. And I I was comfortable making the case for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can buy it. 
because I think there's, like you said, there are a lot of different little snippets, and all of those snippets are the kinds of snippets you hear on broadcasts a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's they, key. Yeah. And I think they can coalesce into one larger narrative about that team. You know, you have all these great players. You have the, you have the best pitching prospect in baseball who had this, you know, horrible absence define his postseason run until until this year when Strasburg was so good you have the the road wins you got the comebacks you you had a team that made us all not hate baby shark and I thought that was impossible and I'm not even a parent yeah Juan Soto Juan Soto yeah, yeah, we all we all got introduced I mean we all knew Juan Soto but like Juan Soto had his like national you know, arrival party. He is now one of the guys that people are going to know. Mm-hmm. And that you had all that goodwill. Then you had some of that goodwill squandered with some of the post. Oh, yeah. I forgot to mention that. That's right. There was that was that briefly crossed my mind as a yeah. uh, intersecting with the world at large yeah. o- option. And then I forgot to write about it. Yeah. The uh, White House visit. Yeah. Mm. Un- uncomfortable for those of us yeah, who completely in- forgot about that. Yeah. That's enjoyed. a. Yeah, uh, politicians and athletes, yeah. those those little anecdotes I have found in my reading of, of old baseball books, those little anecdotes do tend to, to make it for a long time because, for one thing, you know, presidents stay famous for a very long time. Presidents of, among, of, of that is the only person that no matter what <laughs> stays famous for a very long time. Yeah. And people write a lot of baseball books and people write a lot of books about presidents and for those two reasons anecdotes that involve them both tend to get repeated so mm-hmm. yeah that was another detail i forgot about it thanks for reminding me yeah all right well i think can i make on one what more happens to the I ball have... i think it'll be the ball but i think uh, it'll be the ball yeah i yeah. concluded that it was the ball meg what did you conclude i think it'll be the astros because i think that we will get fuzzy with some of the exact sequencing and we will tend to lump the entirety of their decade story into this year, especially if they don't have another World Series run with this core. I think this will be like the, you know, we'll we'll view this as the end to that particular era of Astros baseball. I'm not saying that's going to happen. Everyone relax. But like, I think it could end up being the Astros just because they embody so many things about this era of baseball good and bad and we'll be we'll be fascinated by that in hindsight especially because the after effects of some of that stuff i think will still be manifesting themselves in the years to come i don't think we'll remember pete alonzo i i have no idea whether we'll remember pete alonzo and the reason that i ultimately concluded that it was the number three most likely is that i still remember that al rosen had the record before mark mcguire who had the record before Aaron Judge, who had the record before Pete Alonso. And so it is not obviously the number one record in the game, but I would say that the rookie home run record is probably one of the 25 most prestigious records that there is. Sure. And, you know, it could very easily survive 50 more years, particularly if there are any changes at all to the ball that go the other way and if baseball becomes less of a home runs and strikeouts game in the future. And if... You know, if he turns out to be a Hall of Famer, if Pete Alonso is a Hall of Famer and that's part of his Hall of Fame career, it seems very plausible to me. I mean, Al Rosen, why do I remember that? I don't why know. Why do I remember Al Rosen? I, have, I was I'll... seven when he lost that record. Yeah. The only thing I remember from being seven is like how to read. I mean, that's not true, but like that's the most enduring. I have a hot take. 
I think it? that we will misremember it and think that Aaron Judge still holds this record. I think you might be right. <laughs> Actually, I think you might be right about I that. I think we will misremember because I think Aaron Judge is more memorable. Yeah. And so we will misremember it and be like, it feels like he, that feels like a thing he did because he's yeah. 27 feet tall. He's on the yeah. Yankees. And he'll still have the AL record. And right. so he'll, he'll still get, yes. people will always be saying he has the AL home run rookie record and you'll just kind of like lose. The AL part. You'll just know that you heard something about yep. the rookie home runner. That's a great point. And they're probably, it will be, it will probably be said 10 times more often about Aaron Judge than it is said about Pete Alonso. Yeah. I have one that it did not get there. It, it is not going to be it. But I would just like to note that I think we came very close to this year being remembered for a single baseball game, a single regular season baseball game, which I didn't even think about this until a couple days ago when I was writing an article in response to an email. In fact, I'll, I'll just quickly talk about this. This was an email from April. And it was about, let's see. So this was from Sivan, who writes, Toward the end of a wild 12-11 White Sox-Tigers game, Jason Benetti commented on how confusing it would be if you went to the ballpark with someone who had never been to a baseball game before, and you had to give them an idea of what the sport is like while watching that game. Do any games come to mind as the worst possible to watch to give someone an accurate picture of what baseball is actually like? So uh, the article hasn't run yet, but this week I, I tackled that question. And uh, the Benetti one is is a very good one, uh, partly because it involved a huge home run that ended up being a single because Jose Abreu crossed uh, one of the base runners. And that's already just one of the hardest possible plays to explain. Like, the ball is dead. How do you not get a home run? How do you not get credit for the ball? There is no live action. It would be very hard to explain that specific play. Mm -hmm. But I concluded, I think I concluded, certainly one of the games that I concluded would be hardest to explain was the 17-13 game between the Yankees and the Red Sox in London. And this game was so was very, very, very nutty in, in all sorts of ways. I don't know how much either of you remember this, but one team went ahead 6-0 in the first. The other team tied it 6-6 in the first. The first inning took an hour. The game took almost five hours. Yeah. And it ended up being an... A, a, it was 17-6 at one point. And then the Red Sox started coming back and the Yankees ended up having to bring in Chapman to get the save. And if the Red Sox had completed that comeback and won a game 18-17, or even if either team had won with an even higher score, I think that game would have made it 100 years. I think that game would have been remembered forever and ever and ever. Um, but it didn't happen. So I think it. I, if I had thought about it earlier, I might have had a one-sentence mention in this actual article, but we didn't get there. I'll just end by mentioning that because we started this by uh, piling on another Boris quote, and I said that the only time we talk about Boris quotes was to point out how terrible they are. He also said something about Ryu that I think is actually pretty good, which uh, someone asked, I think, Boris or maybe Ryu about the significance of his wearing number 99 with the Blue Jays and Boris said Canada lent number 99 to LA so with Hyunjin we thought we would return it back to Canada which I think is a pretty good line a reference to to Gretzky going to the Kings I think that's pretty good Canadians will like it Mm. (laughs) not impressed (laughs) (laughs) is that actually why he chose number 99 he already wore number 99 right I think okay so then it's just a dad joke Basically, yeah. Okay. The, the thing <laughs> it makes I, sense. The thing I remember about that Boston Yankee, uh, that, that New York Boston game, was that it started in the morning 
I went to the gym. I had a whole workout at the gym. And then I went and met a friend for lunch and drank a beer and had a sandwich. And that game was still happening. It mm -hmm. happened that whole time. Yeah. I ran yeah. like five miles and did light weights and had a <laughs> beer. And that game was my constant friend throughout. It was just there. And there was a moment where I was like, oh, I want this game to go to extras like nothing I've ever wanted before <laughs> yeah. ever in my life. Both pitchers, both starters knocked out in the first. Yeah. I don't know if, don't know if that's ever happened. Yeah. Wild. Truly yeah. a wild time. All right. All right. Well, we've done it. We've decided the defining memory of 2019, unless we haven't and we completely missed it, which is entirely possible. And we'll look forward to making more memories in 2020. Okay. Personally, I think Rich Hill being arrested for disorderly conduct and resisting arrest might be my defining memory of 2019, but that probably won't be true for everyone. This is the last Effectively Wild episode of 2019, so thank you very much for listening this year. We couldn't do it without you, both financially speaking, but also motivationally. It's the feedback that we get from the listeners and the community that sprung up around the podcast that makes this so worthwhile. So thank you for the continued support and interaction, and we hope that you will stick with us next year. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Anthony Roblevsky, John Sagel, David Myers, Danny Madden, and Stephen Tidings. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. And you can keep your questions Questions and comments from me and Meg and Sam coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We will do an email episode eventually. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. This was a brief break in the middle of the Multisport Sabermetrics Exchange series. We're through the first five episodes of that series and we'll have the remaining two up by the end of the week. Next episode will be on NASCAR and cycling, so stay tuned for that. I'll be back to talk to you very soon. Never knew I Shit, though.